Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. This will be the last show that I will be hosting in 2022 where I review movies. I'm still debating whether or not I should do one final show to serve as kind of a commemoration for the end of the year. I haven't quite decided that. What I have decided, though, is that it will actually be impossible for me to do a show a week from now on December 24th, 2022, because it is Christmas Eve, for one. And number two, I will be away with family celebrating the holiday. And I hope that you celebrate or have a good time celebrating your upcoming holiday with your family and or friends as well. So for this show, I have four relatively new films to review for you. Three of them are brand new. One of them is actually not so much a movie as much as a series. And at first I thought it was a limited series, but it actually turns out this series is going into season two next year. But still, I thought it was of high enough cinematic quality that I thought I should review it. But I'm going to get to that towards the end of the film, or the end of the show about films. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Avatar, The Way of Water, which is, of course, a sequel to the film Avatar that came out in 2009 and was directed by James Cameron. In Avatar, The Way of Water, many of the same cast and crew come back for this film, especially director James Cameron. As a matter of fact, James Cameron has not directed any movie, or at least any feature film, one that's released in theaters since 2009. And when you see Avatar The Way of Water, regardless of how you see it uh, on the big screen, whether you choose 3D or not, IMAX or not, you can see the amount of detail it took to create this film. So the special effects are undoubtedly amazing, but are they worth it? Well, I'm about to tell you. So in Avatar The Way of Water, we are reintroduced to many of the characters to whom we were introduced in the original one, especially Jake Sully, who's played in this movie by Sam Worthington. Unlike the original Avatar, we see Jake Sully as one of the Navi creatures, not as a human being, because he was able to permanently get into his avatar. And considering that he is now over 11 feet tall and he actually has use of his legs as this avatar, you you probably wouldn't blame him for getting a, a new body like he did. But he is living on the planet of Pandora along with his wife, in addition to his sons, Neteyam and Loak, and his daughter, Tuk, in addition to his adopted daughter, Kiri, who was actually born from Grace Augustine's inert Navi avatar. Grace Augustine was played in the original movie and is reprised in this movie in a little bit more like a cameo by Sigourney Weaver. And the name of his um, wife, by the way, uh, I forgot to mention is um, Neytiri, and she's voiced by uh, Zoe. Sa- yeah, she's voiced and also motion captured by Zoe Saldana. 
And also in this film, Stephen Lang returns as Colonel Miles Quaritch, who is a human and becomes actually one of the Navi after being killed by Neytiri in the events of the first film. He's actually been resurrected, resurrected by the RDA as a recombinant, which is described as, and I quote, avatars embedded with the memories of humans. And Colonel Miles Quaritch, as an avatar Navi, has one primary mission, and that is to find Jake Sully and kill him. Somehow, he has the support of the armed services of the planet Earth, presumably of the United States, to do that. But that's probably one of the weakest parts of this film. Both the character of Stephen Lang and also his mission, in addition to the number of scientists and people in the armed services who who are willing to support him on this mission. And it doesn't really go into exactly why they're supporting him on this one mission. And also, with all the technology that they have, it certainly takes them a very long time to find Jake Sully in his Navi form. But regardless, that's the main plot of the film. But that, that, Or I should probably say it's not the main plot, but it is the conflict. The main plot is that Jake Sully and Neytiri and their family are trying to evade this operating base, which is named Bridgehead City, and they find themselves actually joining another tribe of Navi who are adept at swimming and being underwater more so than their Navi tribe. And there are a lot of spectacular effects with this Navi tribe and also the undersea creatures that occupy this part of Pandora. And it's especially amazing to see this film in 3D on IMAX, which I did earlier this week, and I don't regret it one bit. I don't know if when this film is inevitably released on Blu-ray and 4K, if it's going to have the same kind of effects as it does seeing it on the big screen, but this film, along with Top Gun Maverick, is definitely worth seeing on the big screen for the dazzlement of it all. I just didn't really buy the conflict with the 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 soldier or the colonel, uh, Miles Quaritch, and his mission. And I also didn't see how... He, he's on this vindictive mission and everyone else just kind of goes along with him on this mission. I just didn't really think that that would happen in real life regardless of the technology that happens. And also, at the end of Avatar, all the Earthlings are driven off the planet and it's very vaguely explained how they got back on and set up base. So again... The main weaknesses in this movie are with the conflicts that occur with, with within the human beings versus the Navi. And also, I with the addition of the children that Jake Sully has with Neytiri and their mutations and their struggles to fit in with the other Navi, I liked that. However, I couldn't quite tell the differences between 
the children, regardless of whether they were male or female, just by looking at them. And I also got confused the most with Jake Sully and Neytiri's daughter, Took, along with their adopted daughter, Kiri. I couldn't tell the differences between the two of them, and I felt like I really needed to. And also, I mean, with with so much going on, I, I couldn't even tell if they had distinctive physical characteristics. I could usually tell the difference between the two of them when they got talking, and that goes with the sons, Nateam and Loak, as well. But when they were just kind of standing around listening to their father or engaging in other activities with these um, other Navi aliens, I, I couldn't really tell the difference between the two of them. I will commend Avatar The Way of Water for having really great special effects, in addition to a plot that is an advancement over the original Avatar. One of my chief complaints about the original Avatar was it borrowed, I think, a little too liberally thematically from movies like Dances with Wolves and Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, amongst other films about man versus nature, or rather nature versus man, because nature is the protagonist in this case. But Avatar The Way of Water, I think, was an improvement over the lack of originality in the original Avatar. My problems with the movie, though, were with the chief antagonist and also the way that the conflict with the antagonist resolved itself. I, it seemed like it resolved itself in a way that would make room for a sequel, but not maybe not necessarily a, a sequel that people would want to see. But Avatar The Way of Water impressed me in a way that I didn't expect it to impress me, especially 13 years after the original, which is why I give Avatar The Way of Water my rating of a high checkout, because I didn't think it was especially well acted. I thought the conflict was was very contrived. It didn't even need the advancement of the human beings back onto the planet for it to be an interesting film. But I feel like Hollywood kind of inserted its influence and its manipulation into the story. At least I would think it like that. Either that or James Cameron just doesn't quite have that grasp on the story that he probably intended to have when he made this film. But Avatar The Way of Water is definitely worth seeing on the big screen, but its story was lacking and some of its characters could have been a lot more well-developed, especially the children of Jake's Sully and Nefiri. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a documentary that premiered on HBO and HBO Max, which is an HBO original film, and it started streaming on December 13th, 2022, which was uh, on Tuesday, and it's called Pelosi in the House. It is a home movie, in a sense. 
that is directed by Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra Pelosi. And Alexandra Pelosi has had extensive experience as a documentary filmmaker and not just doing films for people, either her mother or people who her mother actually knows. As a matter of fact, years ago, uh, during George W. Bush's administration, he actually, excuse me, she actually did a documentary uh, following uh, George W. Bush, and it was called Journeys with George. That was made in 2002, which was around the time of uh, 9-11, when George W. Bush saw his approval ratings go from rather middling to up to 90%, which no other presidential candidate has reached so far. At the same time, George W. Bush's approval rating plummeted in 2008, or at least, you know, eventually made its way down from 2004 to 2008 into the teens, which no other presidential candidate has also reached. But that is another story for another time. But Alexandra Pelosi's other documentaries have been apolitical sometimes, but political a lot of the time. And Pelosi in the House is definitely no exception. It is a documentary that follows Nancy Pelosi directly behind the scenes through the milestones of her career leading up to the inauguration of President Joe Biden. And one of the biggest climaxes of this film is on January 6, 2021, when Nancy Pelosi was still Speaker of the House. She's still Speaker of the House as of the date of this podcast, but she is eventually going to step down as Speaker of the House. But... We all know what happened on January 6, 2021, and if you don't know, look it up. In other words, Nancy Pelosi's life was almost in danger. But the movie does a very commendable job getting behind the scenes of Nancy Pelosi as she is doing her work as not only Speaker of the House, but also as first the Senate Majority Whip, and later the Senate Majority Leader. And she also is significant not only because she is the first female Speaker of the House, and so far the only female Speaker of the House, but she is only the second person in United States history to be Speaker of the House, step down from Speaker of the House, and be reinstated as Speaker of the House a little while later. That is quite an accomplishment, and Nancy Pelosi will go down in history for that. However, even though this film may have a familial bias, if not a political bias, this movie does show to people who are willing to watch it and pay attention that Nancy Pelosi should be in the history books, not just for being the first, but she may actually be, if not one of the best, certainly one of the most resilient. There are moments in this film which we may have forgotten because the news changes on not just an hourly basis, it's almost on a minutely basis. It seems like things that were big two or three days ago kind of fade off like memes and NFTs. But this movie does remind us or inform us that through all this political chaos, and there's still a lot of political chaos now, Nancy Pelosi has maintained level-headedness and also a very 
noteworthy work ethic. So whether you love or hate Nancy Pelosi, you cannot deny that she works incredibly hard and probably still works incredibly hard, even though she's stepping down from a leadership position in the United States House of Representatives. The movie could have drawn an exact juxtaposition, especially between the years of 2017 and 2021, between the kinds of phone calls that Nancy Pelosi made as Senate Majority Leader and then later Speaker of the House, and also the the phone calls that former President Donald J. Trump made when he was in office. In other words, Nancy Pelosi, when she was on the phone, she would negotiate, 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 hang up, call somebody else, and talk even more. Donald Trump, on the other hand, spent a lot of time on the phone, but it was usually to talk with the people on Fox News. And that is another story, but it just goes to show you that when you think that things are just given to certain people on political parties within Washington, there is a lot of work and a lot of chutzpah that goes on behind the scenes when we're not even paying attention. So it is very hard for me to rate this film and putting my political bias aside. But I do think that as a documentary that's kind of like a home movie and with an experienced documentary filmmaker and director like Alexandra Pelosi, it is a very well-made film and I, it's very hard for me to rate this kind of film on the other side of the aisle if I believed in conservatism. But I really have to say that after watching this film, I admired Nancy Pelosi a lot more. And I do think regardless of your political affiliation, you will too if you watch this film with an open mind. You may not necessarily agree with Nancy Pelosi's political views, But I don't think you can deny her work ethic and her chutzpah in terms of doing her job. And that's probably why she has outlasted many of her contemporaries. And so for that reason and for the amount of organization that Alexandra Pelosi put into this film, it's not just the amount of access she could get. It's also the fact that she could edit this footage, which was shot over a period of at least 20 years maybe even more than that, and put it together and actually make a film that tells a story, that's the reason why I give Pelosi in the House my rating of a knockout. But I do also think that it's films like these and not the barrage of news footage, regardless of whether it's from CNN, Fox News, or MSNBC, which is really going to put Nancy Pelosi in the same kind of position as other American women over the centuries, from Deborah Sampson Gannett to Harriet Tubman to Susan B. Anthony to Gloria Steinem to Sandra Day O'Connor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and maybe a lot of other names which I left out. But Pelosi, as this movie uh, Pelosi in the House demonstrates, deserves that spot in history. And regardless of your political affiliation, if you choose to watch this film, you'll probably agree with me.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is I Believe in Santa, because Christmas is just around the corner, and I've been trying to get some Christmas movies and also uh, Christmas-themed limited series on my palette of films to review for you. So I Believe in Santa is available for streaming now on Netflix and has been since Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. And the synopsis of the movie is that it takes place in Denver, Colorado, and it involves a somewhat jaded journalist by the name of Lisa, who's played by Christina Moore. And Lisa is a bit jaded about the Christmas holiday, and we don't find out why until later in the film, but that's usually the way it goes with these uh, kinds of movies where there's somebody who is not really in the Christmas mood. But Lisa starts off the film by writing an article about why the 4th of July is the best holiday of the year. And a lot of people might agree with her, uh, Democrat and or Republican or Independent. Uh, she actually does make a good case of it. But she eventually, at one of the Denver, Colorado 4th of July festivities, meets a charismatic lawyer by the name of Tom, who's played by John Ducey. And at first they meet because Tom is able to um, look after Lisa's daughter, Ella, who's played by Violet McGraw, after she and Lisa kind of part ways accidentally at this event. And eventually Lisa and Tom strike up a romance. And things are going well from July up until the end of November when Lisa finds out something very interesting about Tom. And this being a Christmas movie, she finds out that he really, really loves Christmas. He goes all out with his decorations in his apartment. And this weirds out Lisa in a way that I don't exactly know it would weird out any other uh, person including some women who are Jewish or Muslim. But things ter- get a, take a turn for the weirder, according to this movie, when Lisa finds out that Tom not only really loves Christmas, but he also believes in Santa Claus. Now, Tom is a working lawyer in Denver, Colorado. He does very well for himself, but he still legitimately believes in Santa Claus. To me, that is a breath of fresh air. To Lisa, it's a bit of a nightmare. And I think that one of the weaknesses of this movie are are when um, Lisa actually reacts to Tom believing in Santa Claus. Basically what she does is, after hearing Tom's argument about why Santa Claus actually exists, she gets into an Uber with her black best friend Sharon, who's played by Latifah Holder, who is excellent in this um, film, by the way, and she screams, and I just thought that scream was a little exaggerated. Well, not a little, a lot exaggerated, and also was a little too much uh, forced comedy for me. But what I really liked about the special was, first of all, it's it's a big step up from the other romantic Christmas comedies that I've seen on the Hallmark Channel and also on Netflix. 
especially the one that came out earlier this year with Lindsay Lohan. I thought that one was very predictable. I thought Lindsay Lohan was fine in it, but the the story was very predictable. Whereas I believe in Santa actually sidestepped its predictability. First of all, I love seeing a, a person who is a serious working professional, A, have Christmas spirit, and also B, believe in Santa Claus, but also C, actually make a valid point for how Santa Claus could actually exist and using more legitimate reasoning behind that besides the reason or excuse, depending on your point of view, that it's Christmas magic that makes Santa fly all the way around the world in one night and deliver presents to all the Christmas celebrating children in the world. And it also is worthy to note that John Ducey, who plays Tom, also wrote the screenplay and the story for this movie. And I saw this movie, I Believe in Santa, and not only was it very enjoyable, but it was also a surprisingly smart film. And I would not have expected the co-star of this film to write such interesting dialogue for his um for his character, but he does just that. And I'm not sure what kind of interference Netflix might have had on it, but whatever interference or lack thereof Netflix put into this film was enough because what results is not only a very charming movie, but also a very smart movie. And I also should note that John Ducey, who's not an A-lister by any stretch of the imagination, is a very smart guy. He did, after all, go to Harvard as... um an undergraduate and he majored not in acting, but he majored in electrical engineering and computer science while fulfilling all the pre-med requirements at Harvard. Yeah. You got to be really smart to get into Harvard, let alone fulfill all the pre-med requirements there. But he decided to be an actor instead. And he's not at the level of George Clooney, but as this movie demonstrates, demonstrates his uh, screenwriting skills, not to mention his acting skills, are surprisingly strong. And for him to make a Christmas movie that might fall into sort of the same um, (laughs) crowd of uh, Christmas movies as other films you might find on Hallmark or Netflix or even uh, Lifetime these days or other channels that are trying to catch up to Netflix and Hallmark, he really made one that stood out amongst all the rest, and I commend him for that. And it's also interesting to note that John Ducey is married to Christina Moore in real life, and it may be the reason why their chemistry works so well in this film. And even though there, I did have some problems with the character of Lisa, as well as her being a little bit more weirded out by Tom's obsession with Christmas more than she needed to be, and especially since there are a lot of weirdos out there that populate the news. There are people in QAnon and conspiracy theorists, and there are a lot worse people out there who could do worse things than be obsessed with Christmas. I was still very charmed by this movie, and this is not something that I say about a lot of Christmas films that are made for TV, and that includes films that are released on Netflix. 
I would see I Believe in Santa again. And I highly recommend you see I Believe in Santa too, which is, of course, why I'm giving uh, the movie I Believe in Santa my rating of a knockout. It is a very charming Christmas film. It's also a very intelligent and well-thought-out film. And it's also very sweet. And I do not say that about a lot of Christmas movies, especially since Hallmark has, and, and Netflix is honing in on Hallmark's Christmas movie niche as well. But Hallmark has a formula that has obviously made the millions, if not billions of dollars, in just Christmas movies alone. And it's making a lot of money for them. It's working for them. But it also is very formulaic. I believe in Santa sidesteps a lot of the Christmas movie and Christmas romantic comedy formula very refreshingly. And John Ducey has been acting and writing in films for quite some time. He definitely has a talent. He may not be an A-lester. Neither would Christina Moore. But I'm hoping for better things for both of them because I believe in Santa is one of the most refreshingly fantastic new Christmas films this holiday season. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for the next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is actually a series, not a movie, but it is of relatively high cinematic quality. The series to which I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Santa Clauses. This is a limited series, or what I thought was limited, that premiered on Disney Plus on November 16th, 2022. And its previous episode, its final episode of the season, aired or premiered on Disney Plus on December 14th, 2022. And so far, there have been six episodes, which are about 40 minutes each. So that's the equivalent of about a four-hour movie. But to this series' credit, I actually thought that it would have worked really well as a movie if it was put together because I found myself going back to each episode as it premiered again and again, looking forward to it, like many of you look forward to seeing your the next episode of your favorite TV show. And I found myself really getting into the story. But that's not to say that the Santa Claus is, is perfect. But it does take place precisely or very uh, years after the um, sequel, The Santa Claus 3, The Escape Clause, which starred Tim Allen along with many of the other actors who were in the first Santa Claus's movie and Martin Short 
as Jack Frost. The Santa Claus, the original Santa Claus from 1994, sure it had some plot holes, but I thought it was very good, and Tim Allen did an excellent job in the movie as a very reluctant divorcee businessman who finds himself taking on the role of Santa Claus despite trying to escape from it. The Santa Claus 2 I also thought was pretty good, but there were some problems with the series that probably would have would not have happened if Santa Claus had told his elves the truth, but I won't delve into the weaknesses of that film. The Santa Claus 3 The Escape Clause was flat out terrible. It had Martin Short, who I like and who I think is very funny, play this version of Jack Frost, which was kind of a weird combination of Liberace, Liza Minnelli, and Mephistopheles. And it was a mess. It, it really was a mess. And it made me not look forward to the Santa Clauses, the TV series, which I'm going to review for you as much. But to this movie's credit, I think it kind of kicks the Santa Claus 3 into the dirt and actually starts afresh with Tim Allen's Santa Claus, whose mortal name is Scott Calvin, about to turn 65, and he realizes that he can't be Santa forever, and he sets out to find a suitable replacement Santa while preparing his family for a new adventure in life south of the Pole. So before I get into the strengths and weaknesses of this move, of this series, let me just say it is a lot better than the Santa Claus 3. The Santa Claus 3 was just flat-out, candy-coated, horrid, <laughs> just terrible. <laughs> candy-coated terribleness. If terribleness is an adjective, which I don't think it is, but... I just made that rule up just to emphasize how bad a movie The Santa Claus 3 was. But it's a little bit better than The Santa Claus 2, and it's really hard to kind of upstage the original Santa Claus because it is one of those modern Christmas classics. But I liked Tim Allen in this film. He did well playing both Santa Claus going through the, his um, reigns, literally and figuratively and also his exhaustion with the job, and his adjustment back into the real world where he takes on the role of Scott Calvin again. Whereas his two children, um, his, his son, who apparently is not qualified to take over the reins, literal and figurative, of Santa Claus, his name is Cal, and he's played by Austin Kane, and also his daughter Sandra, who's played by Elizabeth Allen Dick, are so used to being raised in the North Pole that they also struggle to adjust to the real world. But the real world is no stranger to Santa Claus's wife, Carol Calvin, who's played by Elizabeth Mitchell, reprising her role from the Santa Claus 2 and 3. And what this movie, or series, I, I keep on saying movie, but I, I really mean series, could have done was it could have actually established there being a competition between various people who could take on the Santa Claus role. What I would have liked to have seen was somewhat of a parody of reality competition shows like The Bachelor, for example. I, I'm not saying that it had to be like a reality series shot the same way on crystal clear uh, digital video. It could have still maintained that movie, um, that, that cinematic quality. But instead, it jumped right to one qualified candidate 
whose name is Simon Chotsky, who coincidentally has the same initials as Scott Calvin and Santa Claus, and he's played by Cal Penn. And at first, I was actually excited to see Cal Penn take on the role of Santa Claus because it's it's a big risk. Disney is getting a lot of heat right now for being allegedly woke, and I'm I've not been critical of Disney for doing that. I think it's great that they are making more movies which has which have a lot more people of um, different colors and also different sexual orientations who are taking roles in uh, Disney films. And I don't think it's political. I think it's the right thing to do, and it's high time that Disney do that. But my problem was when they sort of developed Cal Penn into an antagonist, and that's when it felt a little strange for me because Cal Penn, when he takes on, or rather Simon Chocksky, when he takes on the role of Santa Claus, makes it less like... Tim Allen's Santa Claus or any Santa Claus for that reason, and more like Elon Musk, whereas he's set up as an antagonist and not a villain necessarily, because I think he's grounded by the good grace of his daughter, Grace, who's played by an adorable actress by the name of Rupali Red. But when he starts taking on the role of Santa Claus, setting out drones to deliver presents and also making Christmas every day, That's when Tim Allen's Santa Claus begins to realize that he needs to take on the role of Santa Claus again. And that really didn't sit well with me, where you have a Santa Claus of color um, who might not actually even be Christian, although I don't know what uh, what religion Cal Penn is in real life. But it it doesn't really matter because he's playing a character. As a matter of fact... Cal Penn is actually gay in real life, but in this series, he's a, a widower a, and was married to a woman. So he he's probably plays a Christian in this as well. That's not particularly well established, and it, it should be. That's the first thing. The second thing is some people could misconstrue this as a, a Santa Claus of color can't do as good a job as a white Santa Claus. And that's where I had the biggest problem with this show. There was also another antagonist who was a witch named La Befana, who's played by Laura Sangiacomo, who's been in a number of films like Sex, Lives, and Videotape and Pretty Woman, in addition to having the straight lead role in the long-running comedy series Just Shoot Me. She plays a witch in this series, but she is surprisingly underutilized. And I think that somebody could take the six episodes of this show and cut out a lot of the filler and make this actually a legitimate, a legitimately good fourth Santa Claus movie while getting rid of some of the other questionable tactics in this uh, series. And I think it could be done. And I also think there could have been some other narrative structures that this film could have used without that problematic conclusion or that lesson that I extrapolated that some other people, especially people of color, might watch this film and also extrapolate in spite of the questions that I raise. But on the plus side, as I said, 
The Santa Clauses is a lot, a lot better than the Santa Claus 3. It doesn't feel quite as gimmicky as that film. It also establishes a certain multiverse, which they utilized a lot better than Doctor Strange did in Doctor Strange on the Multiverse of Madness. Tim Allen calls it the Yuleverse, and a lot of the other characters, particularly his wife and kids, kind of roll their eyes at that name. But I think, A, that's a cool name, and B, it is especially cool what they do with that so-called Yuleverse. I, I really liked that part of it. So the Santa Clauses has some narrative problems, and I'm interested to see the second season, but as a collective series that could be seen as an extra long film, I would probably give the Santa Clauses a checkout. I do think that it is a bit more timeless in, in some of its execution than some of the other Santa Claus films. I think that it's sewed up some of the plot holes of especially the first two Santa Claus films very well. It was delightful to see some other actors make cameos in this series that did not make cameos, or rather that were in the original um, Santa Claus films. But there were some other characters who were missing who I really thought would have added to the story very well. And there was also... That question of, you know, a white Santa Claus can do it better, which I really don't think was very appropriate for this series that's made for the whole family. But I do give the Santa Clauses the benefit of the doubt. It is a, it's a series that's filled with a lot of holiday cheer, and I liked it, but it could have been better. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and if I have time on streaming for the week of December 19th through December 23rd, 2022. There aren't going to be a lot of films that are going to be released between December 26th and December 30th, 2022, but I will uh, just give you a preview, a spoken word preview of the movies that are subject to being released in theaters near you potentially. On December 20th, 2022, which is a Tuesday, there's a movie that's coming out that is an international film and it's called Men in Blue. And I do not know what this film is about because I have not been given a synopsis of the film. I can tell you that it is an Indian film, presumably a Bollywood film, although not necessarily all Indian films are Bollywood films. But this is a film that is directed by Sashin Diraj and stars Kiki Suki, Manoj Chandra, and Banu Gopal. This is a film I probably will not see, and it's not that I just kind of turn my cheek at uh, Indian films. That's not how I am at all, and I don't want to give you the impression that that's the way I am. But 
there are a lot of Indian films that come out, and I only have so much time to see certain films. Rest assured, in the weeks that I will be off, I will be catching up on a lot of films, including some that are Oscar contenders. But I don't think this is going to be one of the movies that I'll see, mainly because if I can't find a plot synopsis of it, it's probably not going to be released in the theater near me. But if you want to see it for yourself, the movie is called Men in Blue. However, on December 21st, 2022, which is a Wednesday, you will probably see at least one of these two films that are going to be, that are subject to being released in theaters. This is one you probably will see. The movie is called Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. This is both a spinoff to the Shrek series and also a sequel to the Puss in Boots movie that came out in 2011. This one came out 11 and a half years after the original Puss in Boots film. So I don't really know if a lot of people are nostalgic for the Puss in Boots film. I'm a big Shrek fan, and I loved the original Shrek, but I thought that the Puss in Boots spinoff was largely forgettable. I would have liked to have seen a, a Latin American adaptation of the Puss in Boots story. Instead, they kind of made something up on its own, which was a largely forgettable story. And I had no problem with the diverse cast in the uh, Puss in Boots voice acting roster, like Antonio Banderas, Salma Hayek, Zach Galifianakis, and all the rest. But the story just didn't really stay with me. So for that reason, I am kind of surprised that Puss in Boots got a sequel 11 and a half years later, but it must have done something right because here it is. But anyway, here's the synopsis of the film, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. In the movie, Puss in Boots discovers that his passion for adventure has taken its toll. He has burned through eight of his nine lives, and Puss sets out on an epic journey to find the mythical last wish and restore his nine lives. So this is... Puss in Boots in a late-life crisis. Not a midlife crisis, because when you've used eight of your nine lives, that's not a midlife. But anyway, Antonio Banderas is coming back as Puss in Boots. Salma Hayek is coming back as his confidant and love interest, Kitty Softpaws. And I, I think they could have made a better name for her. But amongst the other um, characters in this film who actually are new to the series, include Harvey Guillen, who plays Pero, um, who is, I presume, a dog, because Pero is the Spanish word for dog. You have Florence Pugh, who's playing Goldilocks, presumably using her native British accent. You have John Mulaney, with the voice of Jack Horner. You also have Ray Winstone, Olivia Coleman, and Samson Cayo, as Papa Bear, Mama Bear, and Baby Bear, respectively. And you have some other actors in this film as well, uh, but none that I recognize. But yeah, there, this has a very impressive roster of voiceover talent, some of whom haven't voiced characters before. But Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, despite my reservations about the first Puss in Boots movie, which, by the way, I've seen twice, and I still can't quite remember the story of that Puss in Boots movie. But regardless, Puss in Boots The Last Wish is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. 
Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on December 21st, 2022, is a movie that's called Bigfoot the Monster Within. This is a movie that is about Sasquatch, but it's actually about actual events, according to the synopsis, of what happened at Alligator Alley in Florida. Three friends went out to get evidence that Bigfoot is real and experienced the most dramatic, horrific events any human on Earth could go through. A struggle to stay alive from a creature or man that only passion and drive was to kill as a survival extinct. Let me read that again. A struggle to stay alive from a creature or a man that only passion and drive was to kill as a survival extinct in the dark swamp. Okay, some crackpot wrote that synopsis because that last sentence was very uh, clunky. But the main synopsis, which I can describe better, is three friends set out to try to find Bigfoot and they get more than they imagined. So there are only three people in this film. uh, Giovanni Molina, Chance Molina, and Victor Hernandez. And Giovanni Molina wrote and directed this film. I'm kind of hoping that this film isn't a found footage movie because if it is, it is going to be unfavorably compared to the Blair Witch Project. But this is undoubtedly an Italian film and it looks kind of like a fun horror film. I might see if it's out in theaters near me, but somehow I doubt that it will be. And on December 23rd, 2022, there are three huge movies that are going to be coming out in theaters, and two of them, at least two of them, look to be Oscar contenders. The first one is Babylon. This is the newest film that is directed by Damien Chazelle, who brought us movies like Whiplash and um, La La Land, amongst other movies. And La La Land won the Academy Award for Best Director, It almost won for Best Picture, but there was, of course, that intentional slip-up from the company that was trusted to guard the Academy Award envelopes. But anyway, Babylon has Damien Chazelle returning for his fourth film and an all-star cast. Here's the synopsis of Babylon. It is a tale of outsized ambition and outrageous excess, and it traces the rise and fall of multiple characters during an era of unbridled decadence and depravity in early Hollywood. So this is probably during the silent movie era. It stars Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie, already two huge names, but if you don't stop there, you also have Gene Smart, Olivia Wilde, and several other actors, I'm sure, but those are the biggest ones that come to mind. This looks like definitely a very ambitious film, probably amongst amongst the ambitions as well as the budget of Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club, but maybe and hopefully it'll do better than The Cotton Club ultimately did. But this is a film that whether I love it or I hate it, I will see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But especially with Margot Robbie in this film and how disappointing the film that she did earlier this year, Amsterdam, was, I don't have high hopes for Babylon, but who knows? It might be a dark horse contender. Either way, I'm going to see it, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is almost guaranteed to come out in a theater near you is the movie Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody. The movie should have been called I Want to Dance with Somebody, 
but it's called Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody instead. It's better than maybe I Want to Dance with Somebody, the Whitney Houston story. But this movie is directed by Cassie Lemons, and it stars Naomi Aki, who is a British actress, as Whitney Houston. It also stars Stanley Tucci as Clive Davis. That is a really, really good casting choice. Also acting in this film is Nefessa Williams, Clark Peters, Tamara Tooney, and Ashton Sanders, amongst other actors. But Stanley Tucci and Naomi Aki are the probably most well-known actors in this film. I'm very excited to see this film. There's already been a biopic of Whitney Houston that aired on Lifetime, and it got relatively good reviews. And the, the movies by Lifetime since they've moved on from the Christmas romantic comedies, have actually been pretty good. Sometimes when a a Lifetime movie fails, you can forgive it given where it's from, but some of them have actually been surprisingly good. But when this movie about Whitney Houston's life is on the big screen, this movie means business. I'm not saying it's going to be great, but it is a movie that I will see, I will take it into consideration, and I will review it for you on a future show. And the last film of note to be coming out on December 23rd, 2022, is a movie that's called Corsage. This is a film that actually looks like it could be an Oscar contender, but it is a fictional account of one year in the life of Empress Elizabeth of Austria. On Christmas Eve, 1877, Elizabeth, once idolized for her beauty, turns 40 and is officially deemed an old woman. Man, can I relate to that! I turned 40 and everybody assumed I'm an old woman. I'm just kidding. But I am 40, but you know what I mean. But anyway, she starts trying to maintain her public image. So the movie is written by and directed by Marie Kreutzer and stars Vicky Creeps as the Empress Elizabeth. It also stars Colin Morgan, Ivana Urban, and Tomas Lengyal. And That's about the extent of relatively familiar actors that I could see, but this is a movie that looks to be a bit subversive, especially considering when and where it takes place. But if it's coming out in the theater near me, I will see it and I will review it for you on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, This is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.